Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Well, as my fellow golf fans know, the PGA Championship tees off today at Oak Hills East in Rochester. Now, I absolutely love this tournament. And if you were watching it last year, then you got to see my guest today, Justin Thomas, make an absolute epic comeback. He came from seven strokes back to win in a playoff and notch his second win at a major. He's an extraordinary player who is so much fun to watch. And you know, he also knows a thing or two about leadership. When you listen to Justin, it's clear he knows how to manage his own mindset. That's true for great golfers. And it's just as true for great leaders. You've got to understand how much your mentality affects your performance and your team. If you're not intentional about what's going on inside your own head, it can really cost you. So listen up. Whether you're a golf fan or not, Justin has so many great insights that will help you manage your own mindset better. Plus, I got to tell you, he's got some great stories you're going to want to hear about Tiger Woods and Tom Brady, too. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Justin Thomas. Now, look, JT, we're going to talk about your incredible career that you've had so far. Your 15 victories, your two majors, getting to number one in the world. But first, I got to ask you this one. Take us back to the 18th tee at St. Andrews during the first round of the Open Championship. What the heck happened? <laughs> wow, I'm not going to lie. I didn't think that was going to be an open question. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was right after uh, I made my first bogey of the day, I think it was. At 17, I made double. Um, and I mean, 18, being downwind is is about as I don't want to say easy of a birdie as you can get out there, but it's about as easy of a birdie as you can get out there. I mean, it was to the point where I felt like I could hit five wood on the green. I just tried to burn a five wood. Um, and I burned it. All right. I, I, I skipped it over the burn. That's right in front of the tee. I, I kind of <laughs> heel topped it. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I was trying to maybe hit it up the left side to have an angle to chip up the green, but I wasn't planning on hitting it the left side and having 120 yards in. So, uh, I'm very lucky it didn't go in the burn. I'm lucky it didn't go out of bounds, and I'm lucky that uh, that that video hasn't gone viral. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to tell you, the reason why I ask you this is that you know, great leaders, you, you have to bounce back. You know, walk me through your thought process hitting that next shot. You know, you know, you got to hit the next shot. You got that 125 wedge, and and also, what was in your head standing on the 18th tee box the very next day? <laughs> well, the next day was a driver. Um, and I felt a little bit better about it being on a tee and a little bit bigger face. And I mean, I knew I was playing with Shane Lowry and Victor, and I know Shane a little better than Victor. Um, and as soon as I hit it, I mean, instantly when it was going straight and got in the air, Shane just gives me an immediate most improved award. And I knew it was coming. <laughs> I, I deserved every bit of that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, on the second shot, you really just have to somehow try to get over that I mean I've never taken a walk of shame in a Thursday round before but I felt like that walk to my ball um was definitely the walk of shame I'd love to see a dispersion of everybody's tee shots that day and it'd be like everybody's would be here and mine would be the outlier somewhere back in there so but it just was like anything you know I couldn't let it get to me and I still had a chance it wasn't a very good chance but I still had a chance to make a three and um you know I couldn't compound the mistake and end up making five uh the shot was bad enough i didn't need to make it worse <laughs> how have you found the balance between learning from your failures and and trying to stay focused on the positive how do you do that it's tough i mean it's something i think at least me personally i just go in waves you know there's times where it seems easy to when you get done maybe from a, a bad week it's it's okay, well, you know, this week I did a lot of good things, but I, I maybe just got a little bit ahead of myself there in the end of that Friday round. And I, I was too aggressive in the start of the back nine on Saturday. And, you know, I took a couple of chances that I shouldn't have taken. And if I don't do any of those things, I have a chance to win versus there's some weeks you might do the exact same thing and you get done. And all you can think about was how dumb those mistakes you made were. And, 
why did you do them? And, and always just looking at the negative side of it. But the sooner that I realized that I have those opportunities to learn from the mistakes that I made, definitely the sooner off I started playing better golf and, and having a lot uh, better things happen for me. So it's really just trying to, I mean, it's the same as everything, you know, it's, it doesn't matter whether you're David Novak, Justin Thomas, or Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, whatever it is. It's like, if you, you just wake up some days and you're just not in it, you know, you're, you're just, whether you don't get, you know, good sleep, your swing doesn't feel good, or, or you maybe don't like the golf course as much. It's just, you're, you're irritable, whatever it is. But those are the days I think that separates the good and the great players is, is managing those days and weeks the best you can. Was it harder for you to win your first major championship, your first PGA, or your second? My second. Uh, it was definitely harder to win my second than my first. I think, I don't know why it was. I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to win the first one. You know, Jordan had already won three at a younger age. And, and you know, I had some some of my other peers, you know, Brooks was starting to fire some majors off. And it just was like, you know, I didn't want to get left behind. And I felt like I was as good as those guys. But then it's like you win the first one and then you expect, oh, okay, now the floodgates are open and, and then, you know, I'm going to start winning. But at the end of the day, you only have four chances every year. And I think that's the hardest part about it is that it's, 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 it's taken me a little bit, honestly, to kind of figure out what works for me to be as prepared and ready as possible for the majors. You know, I played before a couple of them last year, uh, taking the weeks off and, Sometimes in past taking weeks off, I haven't necessarily spent that week properly. I've almost over-practiced and burnt myself out before going into it. And I've taken vacations before it. So uh, there's there's a lot of different ways to do it at the end of the day. It's just what works best for you. And for me, being in a good mindset and being, you know, feeling fresh mentally, physically, you know, going there, feeling like I'm not necessarily trying to maintain a really good game, but the longer and more years that went by, the more I kind of started thinking a lot of people have won one major and anybody can win one major, but you got to, you need to win multiple to kind of be, in my opinion, known as, you know, a, a multiple major winner and a, and a great player. Not that great players don't win one major, but um, you know what I mean? You, you gotta, you gotta, anybody can win one. Well, not anybody, but uh, you certainly did one and you did two and there'll be many more in your future, I'm sure. Now, whether in golf or or in business, leaders need to learn how to play when they're behind. And at Southern Hills last year, you were seven shots back going into the final round. Compare and contrast your I'm behind mindset versus your I'm in the lead mindset. I think they're both very situational, only in the sense of how many are... maybe how many behind are you, but how many people are ahead of you. I think there's a huge difference of, you know, going into a Sunday of a major, I'd probably rather be four back, but only have three or four people in front of me versus two back and have eight people in front of me. You know, that it's, that's a big, big difference. And that's what I felt like gave me a chance at the PGA on Sunday at Southern Hills. It was like, usually when you're seven back, you know, you're, you're in 15th place, maybe 20th, 25th. And I was in seventh. I mean, I had six people ahead of me. None of them had won on tour. None of them had won a major. I don't think. So it was like, I know that they're going to be nervous. I'm going to be nervous, but they're really going to be nervous too. So I just need to go out and I'm going to have to beat them at the end of the day, but I'm going to have to rely on a little bit of help as well. And, you know, that's what I try to do. I just try to put my head down, not get wrapped up in leaderboards, not worry about how far back I was, but just make as many birdies as I could when I had opportunities and see where it put me at the end. And fortunately, it was enough. How about when you're ahead? I mean, is that harder for you? I like it. I think it's situational on the golf course. You know, I've played with leads at places like, call it a Malaysia, you know, where 25 high 20 under wins and, it's not like I played with the lead at Akron before and, you know, I just fairway green, two putt, fairway green, two putt, fairway green, two putt. And it's just, it's kind of the tiger method of just don't make a bogey and, you know, no three putts, no, no dumb bogeys. And they're really going to have to catch you because I'm going to be good enough to make a couple birdies. But when you're playing those easier courses, it's really for me of, if I'm leading by two, I need to try to lead by three. If I'm leading by three, it needs to be four. And it just, I don't want to necessarily look backward of, you know, okay, how close are they getting to me? But it's a, 
just try to improve and get a little, you know, get one shot more, get one shot more, and really just honestly try to step on their throat kind of thing because uh, they're all gunning for you and you need to have the same mentality. You mentioned nerves a little earlier, and I've heard you say, if you're not nervous, it doesn't mean anything to you. How have you learned to manage your emotions in those moments that other leaders can apply in their pressure-packed situations? And we all have them. For sure. I think the first thing that helped me was just embracing it. Um, I think there's a, there's a huge difference of kinds of nerves. You know, there's a nervous, like, I'm really uncomfortable and I don't want to be here nervous. And then there's like a nervous, like, wow, this is fun. This is exciting. This is new nervous. And then there's a nervous of like, this is a big moment, but I'm, I'm ready to face this head on kind of nervous. And I think that's where I've gotten myself to, but that's just really been through experience and trial and error. Um, you know, that's the, the best, obviously it's a lot easier said than done, especially in golf is like, Oh, you just need to get yourself in contention to win tournaments to learn. But you do, you know, there's going to be plenty of times. I mean, I've had plenty of tournaments and plenty of circumstances where I didn't handle the moment well, or I tried to try too much, or I tried too hard and, and it ended up costing me. But because I was in that moment, I failed. I was able to go back and learn from it to where it helped me uh, down the road. You know, you talked about your preparation for the majors earlier. You've gone on vacation. You've worked your butt off all week. You've you've done a lot of different things. Now, as you go into to this major, do you have a process now that you really want to use for majors? I have a pretty good idea. I think it's it's very dependent on if I play the golf course or not. You know, it's a place like Augusta. I feel very comfortable around. I feel like I know it very well. And, you know, Augusta is pretty good about tweaking one or two things every year, which to me is a great excuse just to try to go back at some point before the tournament. Um, but then you get a place like Tulsa at Southern Hills last year that I never played. And I used the Monday of the Byron Nelson week to go play Southern Hills, check it out, and then go back in town. And then that helped me with my preparation the next week. And then Same thing with Brookline. I used the Monday of the Canadian Open last year to go to Boston, go play Brookline, and then make my way to Canada. So the hard part about Oak Hill is being in Rochester. I can't quite predict the weather <laughs> in advance in advance, like I could Tulsa in May. So uh, the plan as of now isn't to make any trips up there just because geographically there isn't a whole lot going on there uh, golf tournament-wise. But um, it's really just getting getting rested and getting – in a good headspace that week off that I'm home, uh, you know, having some really hard, good practice days, kind of middle of the week, and then kind of taper it off with some rounds with some guys here in Jupiter. And then, um, you know, then from there, just go execute and go out and hit shots and play golf and not golf swing. You had a, your breakthrough season in 2017, and shortly after you became the number one golfer in the world in 2018. Describe what that's like. Does anything change for you when you're walking around with that number one title? I mean, that's got to that's heady stuff. Yeah, it, it was it was really cool. I'll never forget when I officially saw it. I mean, I knew when I finished my final round at the Players Championship 2018, I was number. I was going to be number one in the world, but the rankings don't usually change until you know late Sunday night, maybe midnight, something like that, and. um I was flying home and I just, I mean, I literally had the, the world golf ranking app or, uh, on Safari and I just refresh, refresh, refresh. And I saw it and it was just, I'm like, there's nobody on planet earth that is ahead of me right now in the world golf ranking. And it's one of the coolest things ever. I mean, it's cool just to talk about because that's, although we all work to win golf tournaments, to win majors, to make team events to have all these great accolades in golf, but you have to do so many things well to be the number one player in the world. And it is a huge, huge honor for anybody that gets it. And I know something that a lot of guys are very hungry for. So when I did get there, it was a, it was a really cool experience. You know, I know being number one in the world was something that you always wanted to accomplish, or at least I think it had to be. And now as you think about your your personal goals, you know, all of us as leaders, we've got to set our annual goals. What's your goal setting process, let's say, for, for 2023? How did, you, how did you go through that? Um, I, I changed it up a little bit this year, just in the sense of, I mean, I still keep keep my goals to myself and between my team just for the sake of, um, 
I just don't think it's – it would take a rocket scientist to figure out, you know, the majority of my goals. But it's just – I don't necessarily like to feel like I'm being reminded of them all year. I did that kind of early in my career of being very specific with the media of like, you know, I want to – I want to win a tournament. I want to play in the final whatever groups of a major. I want to get to this. And all of a sudden it comes July and you haven't won one yet. And you're getting asked every you know interview you have. Like you, a goal of yours was to win a tournament. You're starting to feel pressure. And it's like, well, I am. And I don't need any more from you kind of thing. So that's something that, uh, that we've done. But this year what I've done is more so tried to make them a lot more um, – almost result oriented as opposed to in past it's been very you know i want my greens and regulation to be this i want my putting my strokes gain putting to be this my strokes gain approach to be this whatever it is and to me those are all the things that i'm working on at home those are the things that are kind of like falling under the umbrella of what i'm working on to be the end goal so to me my goals for the year should be these, uh, whether they're th- things that are very achievable. You know, I try to have a couple that I feel like I can do. Uh, I don't want to say easily, but should. And then I kind of have some there in the middle. And then I have some that are very difficult and very high ceiling. But um, I, I want to have something to go for. You know, you've got a team around you for sure. There's no question about it. Who are the key players on your team, Justin? And how do you define expectations for them and motivate them? Because, you know, golf pros, you really, you have a, you have a big team. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know how long you have to go over the team, but yeah, obviously Bones is out there with me and my caddy and then have my, my dad, my swing coach, John Graham, my putting coach, have Colby, my trainer here at home, I have Troy, my physio, who I work with on the road. You know, it's, you can go as, as in depth as you want. I mean, it's like I have my wife, who's obviously my, my biggest teammate that's with me everywhere, but doesn't necessarily do anything on the golf course or anything like that. So, I mean, you can go as deep as you, as you want in that regard. But I, I also have Bones, my dad, John, uh, you know, physical side. I I have them make goals too, because I want them to feel like they're working for something. I don't want to just go through the motions. I always, you know, want to just get 1% better, want to take an opportunity to get a little bit better each and every way I can, but also we can all hold each other accountable. You know, if my, if, if John feels like my dad's not doing something that he should be, or maybe that he said he was going to do, then it's on all of us to tell him because we all want the same thing in this team and that's for me and us to succeed as much as possible because if everybody's doing what they should and I'm more most importantly doing what I feel like I should and can, then it's going to be a very successful, uh, you know, teamwork and partnership amongst all of us. Do you bring them all together or do you do more one-on-ones? Uh, both. I mean, yeah, my dad, Bones, and, and John, and I spend a lot of time together in tournaments. I mean, Colby and, and Troy are working together quite a bit just because – you know, towards seeing my body every week in terms of how things are moving one way or the other. And then he's able to relate that to Colby in terms of doing workouts. And then maybe if I'm home with Colby working out, if he sees something one way or the other, he can tell Troy when I get on the road. So it's really just, it's just about getting the understanding amongst everybody that look, we're all on the same team here. We all think you know, it's very clear that I think that all of them are the best at what they do. Otherwise I, I would, choose elsewhere or, or something else. And, um, so I, you know, I take a lot of, a lot of pride in that. And I also really appreciate all the help that they do. Tell me about the hiring process that you went through to bring bones on. Uh, I pretty much, I, I had called Steiny, my, you know, the head of Excel and Lance Young, my agent, and just said, what did that, you know, Jimmy had decided to go a different way. And I'm, trying to figure out what to do. And I was like, well, you know, I want to call Bones, but I know he's doing TV and, and Steiny has a good relationship with Bones. And he's just like, let me kind of plant the seed a little bit. So he, he called and uh, he pretty much said, Bones is expecting your call. So I, I called Bones and kind of told him what was going on. And Bones was like, well, I just, uh, just renegotiated my deal with NBC. So I need to make a phone call real quick, but let me get back to you. And, um, I'm very, very fortunate that he made the decision he did. He he works so hard and takes what he does so seriously. Uh, you know, he would drop anything at any time to do anything for myself or, or anybody in my family or team, which is really cool. And um, I'm very, very lucky to have him on my back. 
You know, your dad has been your coach since childhood at Harmony Landing Country Club, and uh, you know, which I played a few rounds there. And, and tell me about a, a time when having your dad as your coach has been the best thing ever. And then when is there, has there ever been a time when it's been extremely challenging? For sure. It, it took us a couple of years, I think, to get used to the, we're not, we're not father son out here on the range of a tour event. You know, we're, we're coach and student and um, it definitely, at least in my opinion, I think you'd say the same. It took us a couple of years to get used to that, but I mean, he obviously he knows me better than any coach would in terms of a personal level. And he just, he's really good. Although I'm stubborn and don't like to admit it sometimes. It's just, is kind of dumbing down this the situation or, or making it smaller than it is. And it's like, Justin, you're not playing that bad. You're not playing as bad as you think you are. Like, it's just like, let's not forget your number, whatever in the world here. Like it's not, it's a fine line. So just keeping me uh, sane, if you will. And obviously being able to share the, share the memories and moments I've had with them, whether it be, you know, the PJ championships or tour wins I've been fortunate to have, whatever it is. But um, I've, I've gotten in his face a couple of times. I, I think it that same, the same way it, it can be hard for, I mean, he's, he's very old school coach, which is what I like in the sense of, he's not just going to say something to say it. He's not going to, you know, give me all of these technical kind of thoughts. And he, but he knows that I work like that. So there's been times when I'm not hitting it good and he doesn't necessarily, he's kind of trying to figure out what to say. And I'm, I'm like, are you going to tell me anything? Or are you just going to let me keep hitting it this bad? Like clearly I'm hitting it. God awful. I need something from you and I need something from you quickly. And um, I mean, I've done it. Yeah. I've, I had a probably my first like legitimate blow up at the, uh, at Atlanta, the tour championship a handful of years ago, I, I got pretty pissed off and, um, and made sure that he knew that, but you know, that's, that's what comes with it. That's why we're not father, son out there. We're, we're student and coach. I guess you'd have to say you are the boss. There's no question about that. You know, that is true. That is true. It's one of the few times I can actually tell him what to do. (laughs) You know, like a lot of business leaders, you, you do best practice visits. You know, I know you've reached out to people like Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, and Jack Nicholas to learn from them. Tell me about one of your more memorable conversations conversations you've had with one of these leaders and and what it taught you? I mean, they're all very, very similar in the sense of obviously they're the greatest at the sport that they played, but they have a hard time sometimes explaining what they did or what they're thinking. Uh, It's, it's just as simple as like, look like this, the shot's the most important shot you're ever going to hit. You're not thinking about anything else. And as soon as it, leaves your club face and, and comes to rest for going to the next one. And it's kind of the same thing. MJ is very process and, and present or oriented. And um, I, I would say uh, Tom, Tom Brady has been great to me and I, I've been very, very thankful for his relationship and friendship. Just, you know, I've reached out to him on times when I've, you know, been doing well and times when I feel like I'm really in a funk and he's always willing to talk and, you know, he kind of helped me break down that when things aren't going well, he's kind of winds it down to three things. Is it physical, mental, or emotional? And if it's a physical, you don't have the confidence. And if you don't have the confidence, then it's probably some kind of mental. So it's like one thing can take care of the other, which can take care of the other. And something as little as that um, is something I fall back on sometimes and helps me. Have you really gone to these guys more for how they approach their games mentally, or is that that's really what you're trying to dig into? I am, yeah, and that's the hardest thing that they have. They have a hard time explaining that. You know, it's they when they're in there in the in the arena and they're in the moment, especially in football or basketball. Um, it's very you know, you're reacting to the situation versus golf. You have a long time between shots. You, you're sleeping on a lead. You're, you know, you're over the ball a long time. So it's, I would say that's a little bit different as opposed to just kind of reacting to whatever the play or the defense or whatever it is is giving you. But it's just anything I can possibly get, you know, if I talk to him for 30 minutes, but I can get one or two things out of the conversation that can help me going forward, then that's a, that's a success. What's the biggest mental challenge you you have to deal with on a most regular basis? Um, for me, it's it's staying present. I would say I think I 
uh, I almost have like a little bit of an ADD mind and I just am kind of going all over the place. And um, when I'm playing my best, uh, I, I only am thinking about what I'm doing at that time. And in that shot, I'm trying to hit and, and I accept things very well. I'm not hard on myself. I don't get down on myself versus when I'm, when I'm kind of, I you could call it kind of like Candyland, where I'm just all over the place. It's, you know, make a couple birdies and then start thinking about maybe some holes down the road or start looking at the guys in the leaderboard and thinking about what they're doing or like, okay, well, tomorrow's it's, and then as soon as you start thinking about anything, that's not what's going on at that time. It never goes well. So you would think I'd stop doing it, but it's obviously easier said than done. But uh, like anything, it's a work in progress. <laughs> well, it's true. We all know what to do. It's just doing it. It's just a hard part. I know. I can, I, can tell, I can tell anybody with the best of them what to do, but I, there's plenty of times when I don't, when I don't uh, practice what I preach. Because you're listening to this, I can tell. You're the kind of person who wants to learn how to lead well. But there's a lot of companies out there who want to take that desire and charge you $500 or $1,000 or heck, even $20,000 to try and show you how to lead. That's just not right. If you want to be a better leader, I believe you deserve to have access to something that will truly help you. And it shouldn't cost a fortune. So I want you to go to howleaderslead.com and start my leadership class. It's really and truly free. And after you take this class, you're going to feel more confident in your role and you'll be on your way to getting big things done with your team. Go check it out at howleaderslead.com. You've also spent a lot of time with uh, Tiger, which is amazing. And when you think about Tiger Woods and what he's taught you, what part of the game has he helped you the most in? Um, I would say uh, imagination, uh, you know, shot making and, and just, you know, bringing out the inner artist. I think I'm a very creative and handsy feel player. And I think I think that's why I play well in some of those rounds. I get very windy and very difficult um, because it's you can't be. You know, you can't be over the ball thinking about is, is all right, I can't have this thing laid off at the top and I, you know, I can't have it shut coming down. It's like, look, I have 140 yards and I somehow have to get this seven iron to hit this green and it's got to be hooking against this left, right wind. Otherwise, it's not going to hold the green. And then so it's almost like that artistic side of my brain switches on and I'm just so in just like engulfed in what's going on specifically. And um, I think that's something he's really helped a lot with. You know, I've, I've talked to a few pros and, and they know you're obviously tight with Tiger and they think you've, your short game is incredible. They think you've got these secrets that you picked up from Tiger. Have you got some secrets? And if you have secrets, would you share it with any of your buddies? Would you share it with Jordan Spieth? Uh, definitely not Jordan. I see him chip in. I see him chip in enough. Um, I would happily share them with you, David, as long as you're sworn to secrecy, but, uh, it's more not necessarily like, okay, do this. It's, it's, it's really just going out and it's the same thing as when I was a kid, you know, I, I just would go down to the chipping green at Harmony and I'd go down and chip for two or three hours. And eventually you're just going to learn some shots just from screwing around. And, I think that's really what he's done um, more than anything is you just, uh, this feel resonates to me. And when I feel this, it makes the ball do that. And it might not work for you or I, but it works for him. And that's, I've, I've learned a thing or two from him, but I also know that uh, he has held many, many things back for me. Uh, I, I am sure of that. I'd have to imagine building trust and becoming a part of that inner circle with Tiger has been extremely difficult. You know, what was it that you did as a leader to build trust so that he does take you underneath his wing? Uh, I mean, I think first and foremost, I was just myself. I wasn't going to be anybody else. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sarcastic. I, I like to joke around and I, I sure wasn't going to act any different around him. There's definitely times where I almost have to kind of like pinch myself when I'm in the moments, uh, if that makes sense, just because of what's going on or, or having conversations with him or whatever it may be. But it's really, I think he, he understands and sees how much it means to me. And I think he sees some similarities in how we go about some things between him and I, when, you know, he was my age, obviously in terms of 
accomplishments and, and golf, you know, he has me and everybody else beat by a mile, but, or a couple miles with that. But, uh, but he just can see that I, I think want it and I'm willing to do as much as I possibly can to get it. And I think he respects that, uh, anybody who's willing to work hard and, and is kind of, you know, just hungry and has a little bit of fire in them. But, uh, more than anything, you know, I just want to be a friend. When you're in your position, as a leader in your field and you're, you're a celebrity, obviously, how do you make sure you get the truth from everybody? I mean, you know, when you're a leader, people will blow a lot of smoke. How do you make sure you, you have truth tellers around you? You have to make some tough decisions and I'm sure you've been in the same, same scenarios and situations, but um, it's honestly another great piece of advice I got from, from Tom Brady is just like, he's like, man, it's tough because the more success you have, the more people are going to want to be a part of you and your life. And people are going to come out of the woodworks from high school, middle school, whatever it is. And it just is, it's one of those things to where it's like, if, if a certain situation or a certain person doesn't bring out a, a better side of you or something positive out of you, then there's really life is too short to even like associate yourself with that situation or person. And it's, it is, some will say it's harsh. Some will say that that's not, necessarily the right thing to do but it, it's true you know I, i'm i'm so limited on on my time and there's no need for me to waste any opportunities i have to potentially get better or bring out a better side of myself so it's really just about associating yourself with the appropriate people and appropriate situations um i mean we're all going to make mistakes in that regard of of you know maybe trusting someone that you should never telling someone something that you shouldn't have but especially in, in today's day and age with social media and everything going on. And uh, you, it's not, nothing's off the record. That's for sure. And you really just have to, you know, get a very close knit inner circle. Like I feel like I have and, um, and kind of stick with it. You know, you seem to thrive in team environments. I know golf's pretty much an individual game, but you know, you took uh, the university of Alabama to this first national championship and then, you know, I don't know if there's anybody that goes more crazy in the Ryder Cup than you. I mean, you know, how do you view yourself uh, and your role on the Ryder Cup team? I view it the same as I hope to always view it. And it's just I'm there for whatever I'm needed for. I don't want to be going into it telling everybody I'm the team captain. I'm the team leader. I don't care what I am. I just want I just want us to succeed and and have our team do as well as possible. And if that week it, the captain comes to me and says, Hey, Justin, we need you to play two matches, but we really need you to put your arm around this rookie and play with him in these two matches. And it's like, okay, that's great. If it's, Hey, we need you to go out all five matches and, and we're going to put you out with Jordan first out. I'd say, okay, sounds great. And it's it just whatever I need to do because that week's a lot bigger than me. It's, it's not about me. It's about playing for your country. It's about playing for your 11 other teammates. It's about playing for your three, four captains. Um, it's about playing for your country. So I think that's, uh, that's kind of the, the group and vibe that we have going right now is we have a lot of guys that are willing to do whatever they need to do that's best for the team. And, um, and all we care about is winning points and, and winning the team event. So it's a, it's a pretty cool group to be a part of. What's your favorite story from one of the, the big moments you've had at the Ryder Cup? I would say the Ryder Cup beating Poulter twice in one day is, is pretty great. Uh, I mean, Poulter's been an American killer, a U.S. killer for a long time. It was, it was in the Ryder Cup in France, which we got absolutely shellacked. But Jordan and I... We beat Poulter and Rahm in the morning and then Poulter and Rory in the afternoon. And uh, it was actually my old caddy, Jimmy Johnson, used to always say, what's better than beating Poulter in the Ryder Cup? Uh, beating him twice in one day. So that was, um, <laughs> you know, I, I know he, he takes the Ryder Cup very seriously. And that was, a, I mean, Jordan and I talk about that a lot. That was a huge accomplishment for us. But the, uh, the President's Cup, I, when I played with Tiger in Australia, we were going to number 16. I just made a, about an eight, 10 footer for birdie. And we were, I think all square at that time. And 16 is a brutal, the routing they had our 16 holes, a brutal driving hole. It's a dog leg. Like it's a narrow dog leg left. And there's a tree right off the left side of the tee. The wind's in off the left. And I'm a, I'm a fader of the ball off the tee. And I mean, I hate the tee shot. I just, it visually, it's just not a good looking tee shot to me. Um, 
and I'm, I'm kind of walking up there. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to hit off this tee? Like it's a long hole to where I can't necessarily hit three wood or two iron. I mean, Tiger's going to have 220 yards in, but, um, it was the only, I mean, we, we played our own game, but I, I just, he was on the tee box and I was like, Hey, what do you, uh, what do you like off this tee? Or, and he just looked at me, he goes, I don't care. Just put it in the fairway. <laughs> so that was the <laughs> only thing he said to me. I was like, okay, thanks partner. Sounds good. <laughs> And I did. I hit the fairway for him. <laughs> yeah. and we, won, we won the match on 18, so it was all good. You know, the, the closest thing that could come to the Ryder Cup, at least energy wise, during the regular season is the 16th hole at the Phoenix Open. Do you like that scene and do you wish there was more of that on tour? It's, yeah, it's, it's good once a year, in my opinion. Uh, I think some tournaments are trying to emulate it, but. I don't think they understand the amount of people that are on that hole. It's it's just wild. So there's enough to where the noise coming from people just kind of, I mean, just like a football or basketball game or baseball game, it just, it, it all kind of goes together. But, you know, when you have a thousand people on a hole and and 50 people yell, it's, it's pretty apparent and can be distracting. But when there's 20,000 people on a hole and a thousand of them are saying something, it's just kind of all noise. So... It's a wild atmosphere. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's the hardest part about it is just trying to hit some little soft finesse shot. All you want to do is just hit a driver as hard as you can because of the amount of adrenaline you have. But it's a, it's a very cool experience. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Justin Thomas in a moment. Justin does a fantastic job of seeking out other great athletes to learn from. And one of the very greatest is the legendary Jack Nicholas. You know, I got the honor of sitting down with Jack here on this podcast, and I love what he had to say about the importance of learning both from your successes and your failures. I think you have to learn why you lose. You have to learn why you win. You have to learn how to do both. And I think business is exactly the same thing. You know, everybody makes mistakes as they're growing up trying to learn to grow in business. And you should learn from those mistakes. But you also, when you do something well, you learn from that too. Go back and listen to my entire conversation with the great Jack Nicholas, episode 21, here on How Leaders Lead. You know, I know success for you, Justin, isn't just on the golf course. And a few years back, you launched the Justin Thomas Foundation. Tell us about it. I'm very, very fortunate to be in the position I am and have the opportunity to give back. And yeah, we launched the, the Justin Thomas Foundation five, six years ago um, to, to benefit junior golfers, children in need, and military families. And, you know, we've done a lot of work with the Boys and Girls Club, with the First Sea of Louisville. And uh, it's it just having the opportunity to to give back to kids, whether it be, you know, something like an AJGA grant that, I, that I'm, you know, that I'm doing or, or a grant that I would, that I received through the Kentucky junior golf association or whatever it might be. And, and seeing these, you know, the kids and, and um, you know, some bad towns in Louisville that, you know, they don't have the opportunity to get gifts for Christmas or Thanksgiving or, or, or things like that. And being able to firsthand go in and see them and, and see the, the smiles on their faces and see the amount of lives and that you can impact and, and, you know, we're very fortunate that Tor does so much to support the troops. So being able to see Caddy Pierre having, seems like every week in a pro-am, you know, we have a, a veteran that'll come caddy for us in a hole and just developing those kind of relationships. And, you know, when you hear that they served, you know, in Iraq for 10 or 12 years, it, it makes, you know, that bogey that you make in the middle of your second round really not seem that big of a deal. So we had a great event planned uh, during the COVID year. So unfortunately had to put that on hold, but we're hoping to have another event uh, here in the next you know, year or so to where we can raise some more money and, uh, and help really a lot of people. Yeah, I look forward to being a part of it. And thank you for everything you do for our troops and for everything you, you do for Louisville. You know, you, you are seen as a fine, upstanding citizen and everybody really appreciates what you do. You know, I understand you had a, a scare with uh, melanoma a few years back. I mean, how has that how has that impacted you, Justin? Yeah, it's it's a pretty eye opening experience. It was it was the fall of 2019, so what I was 26 years old. Um, went in for a dermatologist checkup, and 
I had had a couple moles taken off in, in high school. Um, one that was cancerous, but it was early enough to where it was okay. And uh, it's never a good good sign when you get a text from your doctor at you know nine thirty at night saying call me and gave him a call and he told me he's like you have some melanoma. Um, you know you're going to have to go back in. They're going to have to you know do surgery. It's not a very intense surgery at all. I mean you're awake for it, but they have to take surgery to take it out of your leg. It's in my, my left calf and they're going to have to, you know, send it in to get looked at to make sure it's nothing more severe and hasn't spread. Being very ignorant to that, didn't really understand the severity of it. And, um, I was very, very fortunate that it hadn't spread, but he told me I was probably three or four months away from being a patient in the hospital. Uh, and at 26 years old, that's a pretty, pretty eye opening and, uh, bizarre experience and I'm very very fortunate everything's been good since you know I had to do four checkups the following year three the next two the next and and I'm you know it's it's I try to tell all my friends whether it be on tour or just at home to you know go get checked go go to your dermatologist and you know it's not like it's a it's a very intense or hard thing to do but it, it man it can have such a difference and that's why we we're able to launch the sunscreen wear SPF uh you know in the last last year or so to hope hopefully spread the awareness and bring a little bit of um, attention to that because it is a very, very important thing that I think is very overlooked by many. Yeah. Well, thanks for building awareness of that because it's something that uh, affects all of us. And especially if we, we are blessed enough to be out there in the sun, you know, uh, you know, uh, Justin, it's been so much fun. I want to have a little bit more with my lightning round of questions. Are you ready for this? Let's do it. What's one word others would use to describe you? Sarcastic. What would you say is the one word that best describes you? Hungry. What's your biggest pet peeve? Oh, my biggest pet peeve. Oh, man. I can't stand when people chew loud. Like, that's a, mm, I, I can't, I can't stand that. <laughs> that's a Kentucky stereotype. You know, imagine it's the final round of a big tournament. You're on the 18th hole, a par four, and you need a birdie to win, but someone has to hit your shots for you. Who's hitting the drive? Uh, Roy McIlroy. Who's hitting the approach shot? Tiger. Who's making the putt? Jordan. What's been the most nerve-wracking shot of your career? Uh, probably the most nervous I've ever been was my first tee shot at the Ryder Cup in 2018 in France. Um, I still, to this day, say I, I hit five wood off the tee, but when I hit a five wood off the tee, I don't use an actual tee. I just kind of, you know, hit my club in the ground and put it on on the top of the grass. But I think if I had to try to put it on the tee, I don't think I would have been able to. My hands were shaking <laughs> so bad. <laughs> now, I know you carded a 59 during a tournament. What's your lowest score in a non-tournament round? 60 or 61, I think. I know I've shot, in, I know I've shot in 61 a couple of times, but I'll go 61. What's your favorite city to travel to on the PGA Tour? I love San Diego. I think San Diego is beautiful. Last time you were at a Top Golf, and did you bring your own clubs? <laughs> Last time I was at a Top Golf was probably for Jordan's. Um, Jordan Spieth, him and his wife's foundation event a couple years ago, and I definitely did not bring my own golf clubs. Just a few more questions. We're out of the lightning round now. You've mentioned Jordan Spieth quite a few times, and you guys have a lot of fun with each other. What's the best prank you ever pulled on him? I haven't done it. The hard part about Jordan is you can't do anything too extreme because he, he'll go way over the top coming back to you. So I've had to be very cautious. He, he told, he had my car towed one year at Phoenix. Um, that was, that was impressive. <laughs> you know, leaders, you know, we're in the moment all the time. When you're in the moment, you've got national television on you. You've got, you know, the sounds being picked up, you know, and, and you're an emotional guy. How do you control your emotions and stay on top of that? So that, you don't, people don't hear what you might be thinking, or is that something that you're more aware of now? A little bit, but I think most importantly is I can't change who I am. I mean, I, I can definitely try to change my vocabulary because of things that, you know, don't need to be on national television, but you know, I know I don't need to go out there and act like somebody else because it looks like they're playing better than me, but 
the reason why I am where I am is because of the characteristics and personality traits that I have, if that makes sense. So it's, uh, you know, what the demeanor that, you know, Patrick Cantley has on the golf course, a very even keel, very level, isn't something that would resonate for me that now, yeah, I don't want to be spiking up and down all the time, but if I can live in this area a little bit better, as opposed to just flatlining, I'm going to play better golf. You use your emotion to fire you up and get done what needs to get done. You know, um, what do you think golf has to do to improve its popularity? I think it's on a great trend. It's more accessible to, you know, to kids to, I think, you know, we have so much of the, the middle older age generation. I truly think that more high schoolers, college kids, um, you know, people in their twenties are getting into golf and it's, I think golf is at the best place it's ever been. And I, and I truly think if the product is just going to continue to get better on tour and I think it'll have more viewing opportunities for people to get involved in it. So, um, I think just keeping it fun and light and just an opportunity for, you know, people to be able to hang out with one another is, uh, is going to continue to have it grow. You know, 2024, the PGA site is Valhalla. It'll be in your hometown. Uh, how do you feel about that? And do you, do you, do you already feel a little extra pressure there? Or do you feel like, Hey, I'm going in my own hometown and look out guys. A little bit of both. I do think uh, there's a pretty good possibility. I changed my number about a week or two before the PGA just to go ahead and make that week a little easier, but it's going to, I mean, growing up in Louisville, you, you know, David, it's such an unbelievable sports town and it's so cool. The, I mean, Louisville means so much to me. It, it really does. And the amount of support that I have gotten and continue to get from not only Louisville, but just Kentucky in general, um, it just, it does. It means a lot. I mean, yeah, I live in Florida, but I'm always going to be from Louisville, Kentucky. And, I, and I'm very, very, very proud of that. So having the opportunity to play a major championship in my hometown um, is one of the coolest things I could ever imagine. So I'd be lying if I said I wasn't excited and anxious, but um, yeah, I need to, I'm probably going to need to talk myself off the ledge a little bit that week because uh, it'll be very high, high emotion. Well, we can't wait to have you. That'll be awesome to have you there. And I can't wait to see you tee it up. You know, before 30, you've already, you've got the 15 victories, two major championships, FedEx Cup, the players, you know, what's your unfinished business? I mean, just winning more tournaments. I, 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 I want to win more majors. I want to win, win more tournaments. Um, you know, you only have one opportunity in your career to make the absolute most out of it. And, and that's what I want to do. And, you know, I, I've, I've had a couple runs of, of getting on some, some good streaks of winning some tournaments. And it's been in my, in my eyes quite a while since I've done that. So I'm, uh, I'm very, very eager and hungry to get back to that, but also understand that I need to be patient and let it happen. You know, you, you're around all kinds of leaders. You're a leader. you talked about some of the great legends that you've you've spent time with what's one piece of advice you'd give to anyone who wants to become a better leader and i promise i'm not saying this because i'm talking to you but a a book that i really got a lot out of was your book a great one and it just was i think this world is so so used to only saying something to somebody if it's negative or if it's like, Hey, you need to do this better. Hey, you're not doing this well versus tell someone when they're doing something right. I really try to tell bones like, Hey, you did a, you did a really, really good job today of keeping me in the moment. I don't need to tell him if he gives me a bad yardage. If, if I'm cussing him out and fly the green, when I want to hit another club, he's probably going to get the, the idea already. But I don't think there's enough positive reinforcement in our world and, and just in general. And that's something I, I, I promise I'm not just blowing smoke uh, to you, but I, I really, really learned a lot from that. And I try to use that a lot with my team of just positive reinforcement and letting people know when they're doing well, because if they look up to you, then, then they need to, you need to be respectful of them. Well, thank you very much for that, uh, Justin. I appreciate it. And, and, and thank you for what you're doing on tour uh, what you're doing in the community, uh, the leadership that you're you're projecting, and your love for our country. I, I love how you you make it happen at the Ryder Cup, Presidents Cup, and just what you're doing with veterans. You know, you're you're a true American on that front, and I appreciate you being being on this show. And I want you to know 
that this is probably the first big interview you've ever done where somebody didn't ask you about live. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is in about, what, well, I guess about a year now, yeah. <laughs> so I'll leave that to Golf Channel, all right? Thanks a lot, buddy. I, I appreciate it. Thanks, David. Yeah, man. Well, there's no doubt in my mind, Justin Thomas is one of Louisville's finest, both on and off the golf course. And as you can hear in this conversation, Justin is really intentional about the mentality he has on the course. Now, he may not always get it right. I mean, nobody does. But he understands the power of managing his mindset. For him, that means staying present when he plays and not letting his mind go into what he calls Candyland mode where he gets way ahead of himself and, and his mind starts to wander. It's true in golf and it's true in leadership. Your success starts with your mindset. How you mentally process and respond to what's going on around you matters so much if you want to get big things done. You've got to be ready to handle whatever responsibilities and challenges come your way. And you can't do that well if you aren't in a good frame of mind. This week, ask yourself, how can you manage your own mentality better? What thoughts come into your head that aren't actually serving you well? Just by being aware of those tendencies, it'll be easier for you to keep your mentality where it needs to be to lead your team well. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders manage their mindset. Coming up next on How Leaders Lead is Nat Turner. He's the CEO of Collectors. If you're gonna start a company, just get started. The idea you start with will very likely not be the idea you end with. So just getting started is 99% of it. You know, the same goes with exercise and anything. Just make the initial effort, you know, get out there and start and then pivot. That's the thing, you have strong opinions loosely held. So be sure to come back again next week to hear our entire conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be. 